You are listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. This episode is a highlight clip from this week's full episode. To listen in on the complete conversation, see the show notes for the link to the complete show. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate every bit of your support. I'm Morgan McKittrick, your producer, and this is Decidedly. You know, I was thinking about this the other day is that, that a lot of times when you get those catalysts that will cause you to go through a journey of self-exploration, a lot of times we go back to how we gained our relationship with money, for example, in childhood. Well, this is how I saw my parents deal with money or this is, you know, what happened when I was a young child. We carry those forward and and that's that's been pretty well explored. But okay. I started wondering, you know, as... As adults, you know, and I'm, I'm almost 60, so I've spent way more time in workforce and employment and in my career than I did as a, as a kid in my parents' house, right? Mm-hmm. It would seem like that the impact of my career life, my professional life, would have way more impact on how I view things and how I uh, respond than what happened for, you know, 16, 17 years when I was a kid would have. Sure. But the foundation, oh, the foundation, unfortunately, it, it's, um, it has a really big impact. It's, it's so much harder to unlearn and then to relearn this than just to have a lesson, you know, with no context. And when it comes to money too, financial trauma, uh, is significant. It's often very significant. Um, what is you know, financial trauma? What does financial trauma look like? Sure, we can have things like sudden financial loss, right? Like let's say someone's parent loses their job and all of a sudden now it's there's this trickle-down effect, right? Losing the home, having to move, so on and so forth. Generational poverty, chronic debt, um, having a lack of resources, identity theft, financial abuse. When you have an abusive parent, often there are pieces of financial abuse, toxic family patterns regarding money, um, discrimination based on finances. There are a lot of really powerful moments around money that can be very, very jarring. And then, of course, we can have little, little moments around money that shape our perception of it, right? Um, You know, feeling embarrassment with mother in a grocery store line, pulling out her, um, you know, food coupons or having to um, wait in line for, you know, the poor kids to get their free textbook or, you know, having to try to find clothing at secondhand stores to try to look current and clean enough, right? We have all these little moments too that really make a very big impact. So how do you deal with that financial trauma that comes from childhood? I mean, I can't I can't change what those things are. They, they there, there's happen. no investment strategy. There's no budgeting tool either. It is a it's a very much a mental thing, right? It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. I think for it's surprising to me how often people have these pivotal moments around money that are so charged with pain or shame, and yet still don't connect that the way that they're behaving um, as an adult has any connection to that or that having 
trauma around money is an actual thing. Oh, people don't um, people don't see it. Is that what you're saying? You're saying, hey, you, you know, you're you're you know being stingy with your daughter because your dad uh-huh. was stingy with you or something like that. Is that what? And they don't sure. see that. Or- even just to say, what was it like for you to have to wait in line for the secondhand books when all of the other classmates just went and purchased, you know, their book? And to see somebody just like well up with tears and and start to cry and say, you know, I've never, I don't know, it was so shameful. And then all of a sudden, now we're going down this whole string of moments that were filled with shame or lack. And and to have somebody realize, wow, this this is still impacting me and the way that I'm behaving as an adult is really powerful. Um, You know, now we see adults who have scarcity mindsets or they're hoarding or they're a workaholic or there's compulsive overspending or underspending. There's a lot of behaviors um, around money that do reveal points of trauma. You know, I, I probably had that experience growing up is is that there was probably a scarcity mindset. I, I think there was money, yeah. but there was oh, a, certainly a really sensitive to people calling you cheap. Oh, it, it, yeah. well, because it cuts to the core. Yeah. Um, sure. Because there is a there is a reason why that I, I like I'd prefer to call it frugal. Um, <laughs> cheap. I know. Uh, frugal doesn't offend you. Like frugal I, I, is a badge of honor. Sure. Uh, you know, in being judicious with my expenditures is is a is a praiseworthy characteristic. Mm-hmm. I think. But the but there was a reason why I would do that. So early on in my business, I was I was pretty economical with my financial decisions, and people, go, oh, you know, you're cheap. You don't ever spend any money, and it really kind of. Um, uh, and I and I realized I came from that from my my dad who had gone through a bankruptcy and probably had some limited finances at different points in uh, my childhood but would always sort of hold back right and uh, I remember I got my my first car when I was like 16 got it for my birthday that's you know here's your car and I'm like oh that's great and he goes and by the way you don't have any more money in your Savings got. I'm like, so wait a minute. I bought this car because <laughs> yeah, but you know, and I'm like, oh, oh, thanks. And so, and so what what happened is, and I think we all do this, is we see what our parents do, and we either emulate it or we reject it. Okay. And so I began to reject it. And when I started raising my kids, and I I think that at least for one of them, um. I made sure there was never a scarcity of money mindset, you know, and she was able to have whatever she wanted. And I, now that that time has passed, I look back and I think, oh, that, that probably wasn't great because I, I over-resourced <laughs> this person, right? I, and and they, they never had to <laughs> struggle, right? <laughs> yeah. So, but, you know, I want to go to this school. All right. You know, I want to drive this car. Okay. And, that was probably, and we'll, we'll see how it turns out, uh, as impactful and perhaps damaging as the opposite end of that experience, that, yeah, of that spectrum. Um, I see yeah, that a lot with pa- yeah. Yeah. parents that uh, I had a client who several years ago, she divorced her husband Um she made a healthy income, you know, but she made, let's say about $150,000 a year. Now her husband had made about $700,000 a year. So I don't exactly know what she walked away with at the end of that divorce when she was 50. I don't remember, but 
it was roughly speaking what a couple who make a million dollars a year would have accumulated by age 50. And she now has this amount of money and has retained the spending habits of yeah. someone who was making a million dollars a year, but she's not making a million dollars a year. Mm-hmm. And she was barely had the amount of money that would allow her to continue that spending. Barely, barely. Mm-hmm. I said, if you, if we can change this and we can change that, you're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And she kept one major $10,000 expense every single month. And I was like, finally, like, what are we doing? You're spending, you're pulling out $10,000 a month. What's going on? And she was sending money to her daughter who was going to uh, Columbia in New York City. And I said, okay, break down for me why your daughter needs $10,000 a month for allowance. She goes, well, rent is $8,000 a month. I'm like, (laughs) jeez. I was like, all right, okay. Wow. And we, I, I started to become, I became a real estate agent in that meeting. I was like, <laughs> for new apartments, what do we get? And it was so crazy, Emily, because nothing I could say would, would, allow, she would not consider for a moment uh-huh. compromising on that $8,000 a month apartment that her daughter had. Uh-huh. Well, everything's that expensive. That's not true. Well, there's no yeah. other safe neighborhoods. That's not true. Mm-hmm. She can't. She has to be close to school. There's. That's the best public transportation in the world is New York City. So that's not true. Like nothing was real, but she uh-huh. was convinced in her mind that she had to do that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I mean, in that kind of case, that's the clue that there is more under the surface, right? When things don't logically make sense and somebody is resistant or adamant about some financial decision there's something under there that needs to be explored for sure yeah it turns out she had grown up um very very poor and it Mm -hmm. it had an effect on her and she was like hey the last thing i want is for my daughter to feel what i felt yeah And, and yeah i see that a lot with people as we were talking i remember another client who worked a job he hated into his mid 70s he could have retired in his early 60s and i kept saying and like hey why don't you retire why don't you retire you hate this job i don't want to see you again and here you complain about this stupid job that you hate that treats you poorly and finally he blew up at me one day i was like dude i grew up poor (laughs) like i grew up and this is how it was and this and he started painting the image this and that and i said i'll never do that again like all right Okay. <laughs> okay. I mean, and it wasn't logical. He had the money. Well, he was willing to pay the price of being right. in a job he hated just for the income. He he had the money to retire. He yeah. Could, but it was still like it was never enough. He was just letting like you know, it's like, never dude, it's never going to be enough because yeah. I'm so afraid of that that even that any amount of risk that I face that again is too much risk for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Emily, it's heartbreaking. What questions are you asking people to, and I'm not trying to boil down a complete therapy relationship into, you know, three simple questions, but, but sort of, but what are you asking people that helps them discover that their money story is impacting how they're reacting today? Like, what, what are you asking people? 
Well, obviously that depends on yeah. the client, right? Um, so let's say for someone who I'm starting to catch an idea that they have a compulsive spending habit, right? And we're starting to notice that they're making a lot of excessive purchases. Maybe they're purchasing five of the same thing, right? Because yeah. it's on sale and, you know, so they need five, not one. Trying to explore that with them. Oh, well, you've got five. Tell me about, you know, Majin want to buy five. Well, it's a good deal. Well, that's great. It's a good deal. Um, but you decided not to just buy one. Yeah. Okay, well, help me explore that. Some Sometimes people have um, obsessive compulsive disorder. I will say mental health does play a piece um, in, in money too. So helping them understand what are you going for. A lot of times people are making emotional decisions, right? So buying five makes them feel safe, makes them feel secure. Well, what if I needed it, right? There's so much future fear. So we're really trying to get down to what is the core core feelings that are driving their decision to hoard or to spend or right. whatnot. So in general with people, um, a piece of this is actually building some self-trust as well, knowing that, hey, if something bad happens to you in the future, can you trust that you'll be able to pivot or land on your feet? Are you scrappy enough? So ironically, we are trying to work on building self-trust. Um, it is important for people to know where their emotion is coming from around money, right? So what's their origins of their financial trauma? Like you were saying, Sean, people tend to either reenact or overcorrect. And so we are wanting to be very mindful that we are not reenacting or overcorrecting, which can put us into a different kind of pickle, um, decreasing shame around money. Uh, people need to be very mindful of their triggers as well. Uh, like you're saying, Sanger, you know, your your poor client who's so anxious, she doesn't want her child to ever have to experience what she experienced, Real helping her see you're safe and your daughter's yeah. already safe, right? So mm -hmm. we don't want those emotions to drive the financial decisions. Thanks for making the great decision to listen in to this week's episode highlight. If you want more of what you just heard, see the show notes for the full episode. As always, for the latest decision-making tips, find us on decidedlypodcast.com or on Instagram at decidedlypodcast. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter from the link in the show notes. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review as well. We read all of your comments, so if you learned some decision-making tips today, let us know. Until next time, this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.